Okay, we're journeying through the book of Acts, and today we are at Acts 20. Acts chapter 20, the theme of what I want to share is Paul the pastor, or Pastor Paul. So we're still in Paul's third missionary journey. What we are going to see in the final third of the book of Acts is Dr. Luke recording the Apostle Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to be arrested and then he will take his voyage to Rome. And the author, Dr. Luke, is taking a similar approach that he has already taken as he follows the journey of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem where he would die. The scripture tells us that Jesus set his face like a flint to do the Father's will, Isaiah 50 and Luke 9. So in a similar vein, Paul is determined to finish his course with joy regardless of the cost, even if he loses his life. So what we see from chapter 20 onwards really is like a farewell tour where the Apostle Paul is revisiting all the churches that he had uh, planted, the churches that he had discipled. He's wrapping up his ministry by revisiting those churches because he knows that the likelihood is he'll never have the opportunity again to, to see those, those brethren and to offer wisdom and counsel to them. So chapter 20 allows us to understand Paul's direction and God's will specifically for church leaders. So this is something which is unique about chapter 20 of Acts. So in our previous studies, we have heard Paul's sermon to the Jews, Acts 13. We have heard Paul's sermon to the Gentiles, Acts 14 and Acts 17. But here we are going to hear a sermon where Paul addresses church leaders and specifically church leaders from Ephesus. So in chapter 20, we're not hearing Paul evangelizing. We're not hearing Paul defend the faith. But we get some insight into Paul's heart for church leadership and in fact what God's heart is for church leaders. So just to understand before we go into the text, I want to just set uh, the context and just open up what's happening here behind the scene. So as we've journeyed through, we've picked up on some of these points, but I just want to reiterate them. There was always tension that existed in the early church between the very Jewish church that uh, was based in Jerusalem, and there was tension between them and the very Gentile church based in Antioch. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul is the leader of this Gentile church in Antioch. And you remember that 
the church in Jerusalem didn't really move beyond Jerusalem or the borders of Israel. So God raised up this church in Syria, in Antioch, that Paul leads to really take the message out to the Gentiles. So this tension existed. So the Jewish church felt that the Gentile church in Antioch, they weren't really proper Christians because, you know, they didn't keep all the rules. For instance, they didn't insist on circumcision. And, you know, basically they saw them like, you know, you guys just do anything that you, you, you want to do. You're not really honoring God in the way that you live. And then on the other hand, the Gentile church, they saw the Jewish church based in Jerusalem as spiritual snobs. So they would say, you think you're all that? You think you're holier than thou because you're circumcised? You keep all the rules. And at the same time, the Gentile church would say, listen, you need to get a hold of your freedom in Christ. You're a bit bound up with these things. You don't really need to do all that to be saved. So you can see the tension there that exists. So Paul, having strong connection to both churches, in his heart, he wants to reconcile that tension and bring these two warring factions together in harmony. Now, another point I want to, to, to bring to us is that remember that the church in Jerusalem had begun living a communal lifestyle. You can find this in Acts 2, 44 to 45, where it tells us there they were selling property. Well, that's in Acts 4, I believe, for Acts, end of Acts 3. They were selling property, but what they were doing is sharing their goods amongst them. So those who had more than enough were giving that up to those who were less fortunate and it's wonderful to do that very idealistic you know but a problem arose out of that Um, by the time we get to Acts chapter 20 the church in Jerusalem is actually bankrupt so they share out everything that they've got they've got they've got they've got nothing left they're bankrupt You know why? Because there are more people taking out than those who are putting in. And that's what happens. So Paul has this idea that I can harmonize these two churches by going around on my farewell tour to all these churches which I have raised up and discipled and collect a love offering, a large offering And then I'm going to take this offering to Jerusalem to present to the bankrupt church in Jerusalem. And maybe they will show some appreciation for this large offering. And perhaps it will bring the two warring factions closer together. So that's just some backdrop. So we're going to dive right into Acts 20 verse 1. I'll read from verse 1 to 5 and just comment as we go. So verse 1 reads, After the uproar had ceased, this is speaking about what happened in Acts 19. We looked at that last week. Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him 
as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy Antichicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Amen. So last week we looked at Acts 19. It ends with a, a riot that erupted in Ephesus. But what we saw last week, that there was a spiritual revival taking place. People are getting saved. People are no more, no longer purchasing or buying idols, but rather they are burning idols. And the silversmiths now, they're going out of business. So this man called Demetrius calls together a silversmiths union because they're not happy about what's, what's going on because Paul is preaching that God's made by the hands of men. They're not really God's at all. People getting saved, revivals taking place. So that's where we're coming from in Acts chapter 19. Now into Acts chapter 20. Paul is now revisiting the Gentile churches he had established. And I believe for two reasons. To strengthen the disciples and to help to keep them on track. But also, as I mentioned, Paul is receiving a generous offering from each of the churches to bring to the struggling church in Jerusalem and use that as an opportunity to reconcile the Gentile church. So in verse 4, we have there a listing of seven men that Paul took with him en route to Jerusalem. And what's really happening here is that as Paul receives these offerings from these churches that he's revisiting, in effect, what he's doing is asking the churches to elect a man of good reputation, a man of integrity, who would take the offering from his particular church and accompany Paul to Jerusalem and present that offering to the church in Jerusalem. So in doing this, what Paul is displaying is both, I would say, accountability and also he's safeguarding himself because he's collecting these large offerings and what he doesn't want is someone to point the finger at him to say, well, what have you done with all that money? Are you handling all that money yourself? How do we know that the money that was given has reached Jerusalem or will reach Jerusalem and be spent or given to the courts for which it was raised? And this is a wise thing that Paul's doing because what Paul's doing here is shutting down temptation before it has the opportunity to take root in his heart. I think we would be wise to do the same. Sometimes we think we're okay and we can make this journey by ourselves, but I want to put it to us that we all need accountability partners. And we need to put in place accountability measures. How many trust themselves 100%? Put your, put your hand up. You trust yourself 100%. You'd never do anything wrong. 
Any takers? You see, you know yourself too well. I know myself as well. I mentioned it before, when I went into the youth office, the national youth office, I brought alongside myself an accountability partner. Because I didn't know in this new circumstance how I would respond, how I would act. So I brought someone into my life and I said, you make sure I stay on track. If you hear anything out on the street about Reuben King that is acting the fool, I said to him, don't let nobody beat you to me. You've got to be the first one to come to me and draw me up and put me back in line. So this is what Paul was doing with the finance. He didn't want no fingers of accusation being pointed at him. I don't know if Paul had a weakness with finance. I don't know. But all we know from the scripture, Romans 7:19, Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do them. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. So we would do well if we could apply this to our living, that we put measures in place to check temptation before it grips us. Because you know, when it grips you, and it starts to send down roots into your soul, it's harder to shake that off then. So it's better that it doesn't stick. And I always say, none of us in here is, is, can say we've reached that level of maturity, that we don't need accountability in our lives. Every single one of us needs to make ourselves accountable. And it's a humbling thing to do, brethren. It's a humbling thing to do. But we see the example here in the Apostle Paul, what he does in being accountable. And then verse 6 says, But we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So where it mentions there the days of unleavened bread, it's talking about the Passover. So Paul is trying to make it to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Why? Because there's going to be a great gathering of Jews from the entire Roman Empire. For these great feasts that they would have, that Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to participate, whether it be in the Passover or Pentecost. And Paul wants the maximum effects. We know that when Paul was evangelizing, he would go to the major cities where he would have most impact. And here he also wants to have impact with the Jews in Jerusalem in reconciling the tension. So he wants to go to Jerusalem at a time where there are going to be hundreds of Jews from over the then world. So the scripture tells us he wasn't able to make it for Passover for whatever reason. Now he wants to go to the next feast, which is the feast of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 so in other words, the Feast of Pentecost would take place 50 days after Passover. You can see that in Leviticus 23 and Acts 2. So verse 6 tells us that it took Paul five days to journey to Troas. And he ministers there for seven days. So let's remember, he's got 50 days to get to Jerusalem. 
And now he's, he's taken out five days to journey to Shiraz, and he spends a week there. So that's 12 days. So if you're good at maths, 50 take away, 12 is 38. So Paul is using his time wisely, and now he has, when he leaves from Troas, he has 38 days to get to Jerusalem. And I'm stressing this point because I think this is going to be helpful for us as we journey through this chapter, and even the chapters that will follow uh, beyond chapter 20. So Paul, he wants to meet with the elders in Ephesus, but because he's on this timeline, and he knows he hasn't got much time, he decides he's not going to return to Ephesus because he doesn't have the time. So he's going to call the leaders from Ephesus to come and meet him at Miletus. And verse 7 then reads, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So you're going to be here for a long time if I'm to follow the example of Paul. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. Just checking nobody's sleeping in here. He was overcome by sleep and as Paul continued speaking he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Amen. So let's just notice here that the church is meeting to break bread on the first day of the week. So that's a Sunday. And you may ask, why are they meeting on a Sunday? Well, Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, Luke 24. And also the church was birthed on a Sunday at Pentecost, Acts 2. I think I've said it often here that we have to remember that all the Hebrew rituals and ceremonies that we read of in the Old Testament are shadows which point to the person and works of Jesus Christ, including keeping the, the, the Sabbath. So I'm not going to have time to go into explaining how this works out in, in, in the life of a New Testament believer, but I did cover some of this back in Nehemiah 13. So you can go back on the YouTube channel or the podcast and, and go through that study there. But all I want to say in regards to keeping of the law on the Sabbath is quote from Colossians 2.16. He says, So let no one judge you in food, or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So God has come, so we don't need to be looking at the shadows anymore. Amen. Amen. Christ has come in his fullness. So Paul knows he's probably not going to see these folks again. He has one day left 
with them. So he preaches from probably around about lunchtime when they share communion, it seems, until midnight. So that's almost like a 12-hour shift probably. Then after this incident with Eutychus, he falls out the window and he dies. Notice that Paul goes back up and he continues preaching right through to breakfast. Amen. If I try that today, I'll probably be getting my P45. So I won't do that. So in the Greek language, it tells us that this Eutychus is probably a teenager. I don't know why he's sitting in the window ledge if he knows he's tired. It doesn't make no sense to me. But that's what he's doing. And he's sitting through this long teaching, preaching session that the Apostle Paul is delivering. And the scripture tells us that there are many lamps upon this third story. And perhaps with all those lamps burning, I don't know if it was cold while they got the lamps, I suppose for light as well. Because obviously those lamps are going to consume oxygen. So that maybe would have contributed to Eutychus becoming even more drowsy and falling into this deep sleep. Again, in the Greek, the word used for sleep there is the word from which we get hypnosis. So this sleep he fell into was like he was hypnotized almost. And Eutychus falls out the window from the third story and dies. The scripture tells us Paul goes down like one of the prophets of old and he prostrates himself. He stretches out himself over the dead young man, similar to what Elijah and Elisha did in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. Now this action of prostrating is said to be a way of identifying with the wounded. 2 Kings 4.34. So there Elisha, he prostrates himself also over a dead man. And it says that he goes eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. And what this is saying to us is that when we are supporting people who are wounded, when we are supporting people who are bruised, who are down and out, we have to identify with them. We can't go with a stiff upper lip. Like, I'm better than you. That's why I can help you. We have to come down to where they're at. Eye to eye. I, I can see what you're seeing. Hand to hand. I'm being empathetic. I can feel what you're feeling. Mouth to mouth. Perhaps if I was in that situation, I'd be saying the same things that you're saying. The scripture says that we should bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. And isn't this exactly what Jesus did? Jesus didn't stay up in heaven on his throne and crack the whip and say, get yourself in order, sort out your sins. He didn't do that, did he? Just like Paul, just like Elijah and Elisha, Jesus came down. And he identifies with our sins, with our burdens, with our struggles, with our pain, with our heartache. And so that's the approach that we have to take. So let's remember this. When, you, when you're helping somebody else, 
you've got to come down and identify with where they're at. You may not even have journeyed exactly where they're at, but we've got to do our best to come down on a level so they can see that it's not coming from a place of pride, but it's really coming from a place of love and understanding. So the scripture tells us after the young man's life was restored, because after Paul stretched out over him, life came back into his body, he presented him back to the church alive. And then they go back upstairs, have something to eat, then Paul continues to preach until it's time for breakfast. I want to notice something important here. Can you see the hunger of this church for the word of God? I wonder how hungry we are for the word of God. You know, most of the time when we hear this passage speech, the focus is on the boy dropping out the window and dying and being restored. But we miss this point. This church is hungry for the word of God. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I want to ask us today, what kind of appetite do we have for the word of God? Is two hours on a Sunday morning enough to fill you and carry you throughout the whole week? You know, if I was to preach, as as I've sort of intimated, if I was to keep going on till five o'clock this evening, I wonder how many would be that hungry for the word. Not hungry for your rice and peas and your chicken or steak or whatever you got prepared, but for the word of God. I think the church of Jesus Christ in this day and time is lacking this hunger. I think it's lacking this hunger. May God stir in our hearts a hunger for the Holy Scripture and for the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos. They intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Amen. So again, Paul is using his time efficiently here. He is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So he calls for the Ephesian leadership team to meet him at Miletus. He has no time to go to Ephesus. And then verse 13 tells us that even though, and this is an important verse, maybe you want to mark this in your Bible, underline it, it's it's, it's a good verse to, to go back to, verse 13. Even though Paul's in a rush, he's hurrying to get to Jerusalem, and he's working to a tight time scale, notice what Paul does here, if you can advance to the next slide. So Paul is journeying, I don't know if you can see that from where you are, but he's journeying um, from Troas through to Miletus. 
And what Paul does, if you can go to the next one, please. He sends the men who are journeying with him on a ship from Troas, so they sail around the coast to get to Assos. But then Paul decides himself, well, I'm going to walk it through. And this journey from Troas to Assos by foot is not an easy one. There's some rough terrain between there. But Paul decides, I'll send you on ahead. You can sail around. I'm going to walk it. I'm going to be by myself. And we have to bear in mind, he's in a rush here. So he needs to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible. But even in the midst of his hurrying, notice that Paul takes time out to be with God. As I was studying this, I said, God, I'm guilty. My hands are up. God, I'm guilty. I don't take enough time to spend with you. But Paul sets the example here. And you know, we are living in a super fast fiber, broadband, 5G, microwave time. Nobody wants to wait too long for anything. You, you, you just go shopping and, and the queue, you have to stand up there for five minutes and start moaning. Do you do it? I do it. I look at the people who work in shopping and say, can't you see there's 10 of us in the queue, there's only one cashier on. If I was the manager of this shop, I'd take you off, pack in the shelf, put you on the a queue to bring the, the queue down. Does anybody complain like that or is it just me? <laughs> yes, I do all the time. But even though Paul is in a rush, he takes time out to walk by himself to spend time with God. Jesus does the same thing. Matthew 26, Mark 1. He makes time to spend with his father, doesn't he? In prayer. Even when they were looking for him because they want to hear him teach or see more miracles, Jesus is aside praying with his father, spending time with him. So Paul does the same thing and we must also prioritize time with God. Hold your hand up and say, so help me God. <laughs> and I'm the first to put my hand up and say, so help me God to apply this. You know, one of the good things about going through the scripture systematically is that the scripture reads your life. No point me dodging this, you know, and thinking, yeah, I've got this organized and it's, I've got it going on. I just have to hold my hand up and say, God, you got me, you got me right there. So God help me to make and apply this change in my life. So verse 13 says, Paul calls the leadership from Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. And Paul here is going to express his farewell sort of message from God's heart to these church leaders. So verse 18, this is speaking of the leadership team from Ephesus. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. 
testifying to the Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That, 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 that's a little golden uh, verse there. We don't just repent, but we must act, we must believe. Amen? And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul here is not sure what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, but everywhere he's going, you know, he's doing this farewell tour, and every church he stops off at, somebody by the Holy Spirit brings a message to Paul saying, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go, it's not going to go well for you. But it seems to me that Paul's not going to be diverted from his course. And I don't know why he set him, himself like this. Perhaps he can, he's thinking he can effectively bring the message to Jerusalem, to the Jewish believers, and just clear up some misconceptions. Remember, he's a Jew himself, so he has a heart and a passion and love for his own people. But nonetheless, he's getting these warnings at all the churches, and he seems to be kind of like, I don't know if he's ignoring them and brushing them aside, but he's, he's setting himself on this course, and he's not going to be deterred. And then in chapter 21, we will see his decision and his action and chapter 21 of Acts is probably one of the most controversial chapters in the book of Acts. So I'm glad that I will not be bringing it to you in two weeks' time. Amen. So pray for the speaker in two weeks' time. Amen? Praise God. I'll give you a clue who he is. He's sitting on the front row. <laughs> Amen. I'm not going to influence him which way to go on, which take, to, to what route to take on chapter 21. It will be entirely up to him. Do you know sometimes we harden our hearts and ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit? This can happen to those who are unbelievers. Well, I did it before I became a Christian. I heard the, the preaching of the message of the gospel umpteen times having grown up in church and in effect hardened my heart. And probably most of us didn't accept the message of the gospel the first time we heard it. So unbelievers do that, but also believers also harden their hearts. Sometimes God speaks to us in relation to certain aspects of our lives. The Holy Spirit puts his finger on a sore point in our lives and while it's uncomfortable, we choose to conveniently ignore what the Holy Spirit is saying. Anybody ever done that? Come on, be honest in the house of God. <laughs> I know our, all our hands up are in our hearts, maybe not our physical hands up, but in, your, in, your, in our hearts all our hands are up. Because sometimes we choose to ignore the Holy Spirit's promptings, whether that is to forgive somebody whether that has to let go of something and move on whether that's to serve your community or your family or church in a certain way we all do it but we're in danger if we ignore 
the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And remember that these are mature believers and churches that Paul himself has raised up, but yet Paul chooses to ignore these messages from these sincere and mature believers. This is Paul's response in verse 24. He says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's saying, I'm hearing all these messages that are coming, and the scripture makes it clear, it's by the Holy Spirit. It's not just people standing up in the flesh. These messages are, are coming by the Holy Spirit. Paul chooses to ignore them, and he says, nothing is going to get me to change my mind. That, that's serious when you think about it. You know, sometimes we can run headlong into trouble, even though we get warning. That's what the scripture, I believe, talks about, stiffening your neck and hardening your heart. Paul said, I don't care if I get killed. I don't care if I go through tests and trials, because I count all things loss for the cause of Christ. Philippians 3, 8. So Paul is looking at himself as running a race, a course, and he wants to finish this course regardless of the outcome. He doesn't care if he loses his life, suffer loss, if, he, if he's beaten again, he doesn't care. He wants to finish his course. I think it was last weekend, it was the London Marathon. Did you know not, not everyone that started the London Marathon finished it? I believe you only get one of those medals if you complete it. No matter how long it takes you, it could even take you half a day, a day. I understand that if you finish it, you get something to say, well, I, I, I participated. But you know, as I thought about this, I am not in this Christian race just to say I participated. I don't know about you. I'm in this race because I want to finish my course. And I want to spend eternity with God. So Paul had the same mind and he wasn't going to get distracted even though God is speaking to him through these believers. So let's hear what Paul now says to these leaders about finishing the race. Verse 25. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, and I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Amen. I want us to just notice three things in particular that I believe that God wants church leadership 
to understand. And he speaks this message through Paul to the leadership team from Ephesus. Note in verse 26 and 27 that church leadership, you are responsible to teach the full counsel of God. And Paul says, I, I, I did this amongst you. I have no blood on my hands. That's partly why we are doing these series and going through the scripture systematically. Because it's easy to cherry pick, to dip into our favorite portions of scripture. You know those portions that really make us happy and give us a really good spiritual glory, hallelujah, workout. But the danger is that if leadership, church leadership, don't teach and preach the full counsel of God, the congregation is not going to make the race, not going to finish their course. Because all you get is little snippets here and there. So I proclaim again in this house that the New Testament Church of God Harvest Temple is committed to teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. And I would hope that all of us who teach and preach that when the searchlight turns on us and catches us out, we'll be honest enough to admit to it and say, so help me God. So we are committed to teach and preach the full counsel of God. I believe that we have a personal responsibility to seek out the full counsel of God. But that does not negate the responsibility of church leadership to teach and preach the full counsel of God. James 3 verse 1 says that not many of us should seek to be teachers. Now there's a message you don't hear preached very often. Why? Because the teachers and preachers are going to receive a much weightier and stricter judgment. There we go again. So help me God. <laughs> Amen. So we're committed to teach the full counsel of God. Paul said he did it. There's no blood on his hands. Secondly, he says to these church leaders in verse 28 feed in some translations it says shepherd but really it should be feed the flock of god well how do you feed the flock you feed them with the whole counsel of god feed the flock of god as church leaders we can get busy and caught up doing all sorts of things because you know running a church these days or having oversight over a church these days it's not just about preparing the message and coming and preaching to for half an hour there is so much more. You have to be a lawyer. You have to be a social worker. You have to have expertise in so many fields financially. Our priority as church leaders is to feed the flock of God. Even though we have to do all these other things, we cannot neglect to feed the flock of God with the word of God. And this is what Jesus says to Peter in John 21. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Amen. And then in verse 29 to 31, there's a solemn warning there about the enemy both creeping into the church and also raising up from inside the church. Man, this is serious, isn't it? 
He said, there will be wolves in your midst. And Paul says to the leadership there, don't tolerate unbiblical theology. In other words, don't be deceived. There are many who are deceiving the body of Christ with all sorts of of doctrines. And that's why we have to be like the Berean brethren. You remember Acts 17? That even though Paul was teaching the full counsel of God, they went and they checked whether the things that the Apostle Paul was saying, were they, they line up with the word of God or not. So they were more noble. We have to be of that sort of uh, mindset. And I hope that none of us has been offended by me saying that. It doesn't matter if it's me. It doesn't matter if it's a national overseer. It doesn't matter if it's the international bishop. Check in the scripture yourself whether those things which are being taught and preached to you are true. I don't care if it's someone who just raised somebody from the dead. Check in the scripture. You know the devil can do signs and wonders too, don't you? Can appear as an angel of light. And that's the sort of thing that's fooling a lot of people. You get dazzled by what they see and fancy terminology and slogans and whatever. Check the scripture. And that's why we're taking time to walk through it at a pace so we get a better and a broader understanding of what God's word is saying to us. Amen. So don't be deceived. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And if you read on beyond into verse 6, you will see that Paul links this passage to finishing the race. So the whole idea of being watchful and not being deceived, he goes on to say, verse 6, For I am ready to be poured out a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. So you see the link there. That for us to, to finish the course, we have to be watchful. We can't be deceived. We have to be watchful, and we have to receive the full counsel of God and be fed with that full counsel. Amen? Amen. Verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's sometimes used as a benediction, so that's where it comes from. Verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. That's an important verse there. I I believe in uh, having a good work ethic. Paul, although he had the right to be supported by the church, but in certain circumstances, he chooses to work. And we've already seen that the church in Jerusalem was bankrupt because more were taken out than putting in. You know, I believe that you should contribute. Yeah, I believe in that. 
from I was a child, I, I was contributing. Yes, I put the bins out. Before I had money to contribute, I'd um, wash up, do the vacuuming, help with the shopping. There are not many people who are in a place where they can't contribute. I believe most of us can contribute. So if you're raising a family, let them contribute. Amen. Don't let them just live free, carefree. You must, you must contribute, man. Amen. I remember when I was 13, I was getting up doing my paper round. I don't know how much he was helping my mom, but I was contributing. And I felt good about it. He put my two pennies worth in. And I felt, I felt like a man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something. So we must contribute. Whether that's a home setting. Because you, you know, you're not doing your children any favors. If you let them live carefree, everything's provided for. They don't have to do no chores, nothing. Because when they leave, they're going to be in problems. You know that. <laughs> Yeah, they must. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm not using this message for any personal gain or advantage this, this morning. But just passing on, so well, my, ki- my children do contribute. Praise God. Amen. You must contribute. You can't just come to church and not contribute. Or else we're going to go bankrupt. <laughs> you can't just keep taking out, taking out. You've got to put in. It's the same with the community. Same where you work. You have to contribute. And all of us can contribute in some way. So Paul provided for his necessities. He contributed. He said, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive and when he had said these things he knelt down and prayed with them all then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more and they accompanied him to the ship so this is a very um, emotional scene they don't want Paul to leave but he has set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. And he's not going to change his mind about it either. He's determined to go. I believe maybe what Paul is saying here, rightly or wrongly, is what he wrote in Romans 8.18. And Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans prior to this, when he was in Corinth. This is when he wrote this epistle to the Romans. And maybe he was thinking what he wrote in Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And maybe Paul is saying, I don't care what hardship I'm going to face. I don't care what test I'm going to face when I go to Jerusalem. It's not going to be worth comparing to the glory that I will share with Christ. And also remember that Paul has this vision in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Remember he has this vision where he wasn't sure if you know, he was fully awake or he was sleeping, was dreaming. He was in a vision and he saw things in heaven which wasn't lawful for him to, to speak or to, or to write off. 
And maybe Paul's thinking, I don't care what happens to me in Jerusalem, if I end up in that place that I saw in that vision, I don't care, I'm going forward. The scripture said, no eye has seen, no ears heard, neither has he entered into the heart of man. The things God has prepared for those who love him. I want to end by saying that it is important that we have a proper perspective on eternity. So I want to ask you, what is your perspective of eternity? Well, you know, some believe that when we die, that's it. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you cease to exist. Others believe that when you die, well, if you are good, you may come back as a king or a queen or a prince. If you're bad, you might come back as a slug or an ant. You laugh, but some people believe this. What is your perspective on eternity? You know, the older I get in life, you know, I'm nearer the end now than when I begun. I've probably got less years to live now than I've already lived. So, of course, you do think about these things, don't you? Come on, who who thinks about death and what's going to happen when you leave here and... Yeah, you do think about it. It's not morbid and it doesn't bring bad luck either. (laughs) If you think about it or if you talk about it. This is just a reality of life. So I do think about death and leaving this world. But our perspective is important because whatever you think about eternity will affect how you live out your life now. Most definitely. Choices that you make. And even when you're going through hard times... When you're going through hard times, you know what I say to myself sometimes? Trouble can't last always. (laughs) This too will pass. I could be going through heartache. I could be broken. I could be riddled with disappointment. I could have physical pain in my body. Walking through the path of bereavement, the shadow of death. This too will pass. And what helps me sometimes is to look beyond the pain and the heartache and the trouble and strife. Just to lift up my eyes. Look to that horizon and look into eternity. Because sometimes, let's admit it, life is tough, isn't it? Sometimes, I tell you, no joke. Sometimes life is hard and you're wondering, am I going to make another step? In those moments, if you can lift up your head, if you can lift up your mind and look through that challenging circumstance to a place of peace, to a place of rest, to a place of reward, a place where you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You know what that does? That kind of energizes you. Amen. Amen. And then you begin to say to yourself, God, you are a faithful God. I'm going to make it one more day. I'm going to take one more step. I'm going to trust you one more time. Hallelujah. What is your perspective on eternity?
Very important. These scriptures, Revelation 16 verse 7 and Revelation 19 verse 2. It's up there on the board. I'm telling you, these scriptures have been blessing me over the last couple of years. Because what it says is that one day, every single one of us will say to God, everything you have done in my life was for my good. Amen. Some of us may struggle to say that right now. But so faithful is our God. And because we can't see everything, we can't understand everything, we try and compute and work things out, and we ask God, well, why did things go this way? Surely things could have gone easier for me. Why did I have to go through this trouble and this heartache and this bother? One day. We're going to say to God, every single thing that I went through on life's journey, you allowed it for my good. Can you bless God for that? Hallelujah. And I'm telling you, if you live with eternity in perspective, when you can't understand, when you can't fathom it, when you can't work it out, live with eternity in perspective, you'll get through the day. You'll get through your midnight. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I hope that encourages someone today. What is your view on eternity? If you're in here and you're not a Christian, do you think about death? Do you think about dying? What do you think will happen eventually when you die? Is that it? Is that finito? Or do you believe that you are going to be accountable to a holy, faithful, and righteous God? Do you believe that you're going to have to stand before God and give an account for the time that is allotted to you and what you have done with the person and works of Jesus Christ? I say to you that every one of us will have to give an account. So if you're here in particular in this service today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking about eternity, I want to invite you to an eternal God who wants to invite you into a future of living with him forever, communing with him. Not only that, what's removing every sin, every hindrance that will prevent you from spending eternity in God's holy presence. What is your view on eternity today? If you're here and you want to secure your eternity with God, I want to invite you to Jesus right now. If you're here, it may be you've heard this often. And like Paul, maybe you've turned your heart aside from it and you're saying, well, I'm not ready. When I'm ready, I'll come. I've got a few things to fix up before I come. But God is saying, now is the day of salvation. Time is winding up. We see it happening right before our eyes. I don't know if you're checking the news, but time is winding up. I also want to say to the believers, well, what is your view on eternity? 
particularly if you're going through a rough patch. Don't keep your head down buried in the circumstance. You've got to lift up your eyes. You've got to lift up your head and look beyond and see that God is ever faithful. God is ever true. God doesn't allow us to go through tests because he ain't got nothing better to do. But we have to remember that everything we go through in this life is not just for the benefit of this life, you know. But God's got an eternal view. So God is working out eternal purposes even in this life. So some of what we will enter into, we won't even do it in this life. And then we may think, well, we've missed it. No, God is faithful. God hasn't missed it. In eternity, there will be some of the outworking. Remember, eye hasn't seen. Ear hasn't heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared. So there are things that we will never, ever know and understand and grasp until we enter that eternal divide into eternity. I hope that helps you to make it through today. If you're here and you want prayer, I'm not going to ask you what you're going through. And this is not meant to embarrass anybody, but you know, but we all get there at times. There's some days when I'll be the first one to come to the altar. There's, there's just no shame about that. We're humans and we, we have challenges, don't we? Let's just be real with one another. But this is a safe environment where we're family and we're here to uphold each other, to bear each other's burdens. Come and let us pray. Amen. Because we love each other, don't we? Amen. And we want the best for each other. Let's just pray together now. God our Father, you are faithful, ever trustworthy true to your word and your promises thank you for this passage of scripture as we are walking this journey and for speaking into our lives oh god there is so much that i personally can just hold my hand up to and say lord that's me you're speaking to me the scripture is speaking to me and i believe that it applies to all of us lord so Lord, we pray that you would help us in particular today to apply the truth of your word to our lives. In Jesus' name.